Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to be celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Mm. I'm going to invite Joanna to put up a picture. And in this picture, you'll see some people. Now, listen, there's one in every group, right? (laughs) Somebody who thinks, let's take a jumping photo. And how many times do you have to do it? You know, 10, 15 times. Now, here's the thing. If you could zoom in on this photo, I am on the right side there. Look Look at that elevation. Look at how high I am. But also, if you could zoom in on this photo, just the whole thing, what you would see is the wedding ring that was entrusted to the best man is currently flying out of one of their pockets. If you add hyperzoom. Now, I know this because I was that best man. The feeling of something being lost and everybody knowing is a terrible feeling. Little did I know in this moment that there was a wedding ring that I had been entrusted with that was flying out of my pocket that I would later discover 
right before the ceremony started, as I went to check in my jacket pocket, you know how you do, you're just like, of course it's there. I'm just gonna reach in, make sure one more time, and I reach in, and nothing is there. And I just start panicking. I'm thinking, I must have put it in some other place. I am turning my pockets inside out. Nothing is there. And then, I start to, you know, you kind of do the whisper thing. You're like telling the other grooms, and you're like, hey, I, I can't find the ring. Is that a problem? <laughs> and they're all super helpful. We spring into action, but the wedding ceremony is going to start. We're already late. And so we end up just having the wedding ceremony. We throw in the, the pastor's wife gives her wedding ring. They don't touch, let me touch it for reasons unknown but we use that for the ceremony and then you know how like when you're in a crowd of people and something happens there's this way that the information slowly diffuses throughout the crowd so you know at first it, like that at first excuse me we good Thomas it's just gone all right that's all right at first it was this sense of like, oh, the people in the inner circle knew. But somehow, some way, I could see as the whole place started to change and the room started to understand, the idiot best man has lost the wedding ring. Now, but here's the thing. People are generally really nice. And so what they then do is spring into action to try to help. So they're like, okay, the wedding ring has been lost. Let's all try to help find it. Now, if you've ever been embarrassed, what's the one thing you want not to happen? For everybody else to know. For them all to understand what is happening. You just want to crawl into a hole and die. But no, at this wedding, so many people I knew, so many people I didn't know. If you ever seen one of those crime scene shows where they walk like shoulder length apart and they're like scanning this giant field looking for this ring and I'm just looking out it's like look what I've done <laughs> and I prayed I was like Jesus can we please like what a miracle what a beautiful story Luke 15 lost and found can it just happen right now and it didn't happen not that night at least we went through the whole party and here's the beautiful thing about weddings even an idiot best man can't ruin a beautiful ceremony and my friend Tim and his wife Elizabeth had a great party even though I'm sort of like enjoying it with sort of a you know two minds it was fine and it wasn't until the next day that my wife our oldest daughter Evie and one of the groomsmen went out to literally try to find a needle in a haystack and we did Nick one of the groomsmen goes here it is and I tell you the joy that entered my heart <laughs> Living on a pastor's salary, thinking like, all right, I'm not going to have to replace this ring to compound all of my idiocy that had brought this moment. And I tell you that story, not to just tell you the most embarrassing thing I think I've ever experienced, but to invite you into this truth. That when we celebrate that which has been found, that which was lost, is a reflection of our God. And Jesus tells us a story about things being lost and found today. The pastor Greg Boyd says that the way that we envision God, the way that we see God, is the most important thing about us. That the, the question of who is God ultimately answers the question, who are we? I mean, you can envision this. If God does not exist, then really there's no, there's no consequence. You don't really have to live by any code 
other than one you sort of impose upon yourself because there is no cosmic justice, no, nothing eternal. Now, if God is far off, if he's this kind of absentee landlord who set the world in motion and then just said, good luck, that's also going to dictate a certain way of living. But this is not the God that we get the picture of in the New Testament. This is not the God that we get the picture of in the scriptures. No, throughout the scriptures, the Bible keeps saying to us that God is drawing near, that he is drawing close to us. And when we started this community as Ecclesia, that question, what does God look like, is the one that drives me more than anything else. Because the more I talk to people, the more I see people that don't have a faith that they would express to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But the more I talk to these people, I'm just like, I think you've been given a very bad picture of God. And I want... My hope for you is just to point to Jesus because I think he's that beautiful and that good. And today, I want to invite you, just as we are walking through this story, to just hold your picture of God in your mind. I don't know what you carried in with you this morning. I don't know what's driving your picture of God in this moment. But I want to invite you to see that perhaps God is more beautiful than his PR. Perhaps Jesus is revealing God fully in such a way that it is worth giving your life to. Perhaps Jesus celebrates when the lost things are found. We're going to look today in that story that Zechariah read for us. And, and this story is, I think, just one of the most beautiful and brilliant stories that has ever been told by humanity. And so I'm so excited to tell it to you today. Luke tells us that there are people present listening to Jesus. Now, Jesus, when he would tell stories, would tell them to real-life people like you and I. And Luke tells us the kinds of people that are present as Jesus is telling this story. And there's two groups that these uh, people fall into these categories. The first one is it says that sinners and tax collectors are leaning in to hear what Jesus has to say. That there's something about Jesus' words that are inviting them closer. It also says that there are those religious leaders, those who were the gatekeepers of their time, that had incidentally told the, the sinners and the tax collectors that they were cursed by God, that they were far from God, they're grumbling and complaining and saying that this man eats with sinners and tax collectors. How could he be anything of uh, anything representing holiness? How could he have any authority from God if that's the kind of life that he lives? But as is so often the case, when people are criticizing Jesus for exactly what he came here to do, all we can say is, amen, this man eats with sinners and tax collectors. And I want to tell this story. I want to offer just a couple of details because I think the details are really important. It starts in verse 11 of Luke 15. Luke writes, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. And we miss this sometimes. We think that Jesus is a divine robot that's just floating through the world. No, Jesus was brilliant. And just like any good story, he starts off with the first century equivalent of a loaded gun. Think about this. When do you get an inheritance? When the person that is going to give you the inheritance dies. What might this son be saying to his father? Father? I wish you were dead, right? 
So Jesus begins the story. There was a man who had two sons. Father, I wish you were dead. Now, there is a culture that all of this takes place in. And the crowd, those people that we've been introduced to, sinners and tax collectors, religious leaders, are all listening. And they would have cultural expectations about what the father was supposed to say to his son who said, Father, I wish you were dead. And their cultural expectations were patriarchal vengeance. This younger son is out of line, and he needs to be put back in his place. And so they're listening to Jesus' words. They're like, this younger son is about to get a beatdown that is coming to him. But that's not what happens in the story. It says, so the father divided his property between them. Record stops. What kind of father is this? This son says to him, I wish you were dead. And the father says, okay, take what is yours. Now, there's a couple of other things going on here. This was not a cash-based society. So when it says that the father took his property and divided it between them, it means that the father has to spring into action and begin liquidating assets. Most assets for a wealthy estate in the first century were held in things like livestock and land. And this is a very public society. The father selling off land that has likely been in his family for generations would cause some eyebrows to be raised in the town. And here's what's going on here. We've all had those moments of personal shame, interactions between two people that we wish would never be broadcast to the public world around us. But as this father begins to liquidate his assets, guess who's also brought in on this father's shame that he has a son who wishes he was dead? The whole town begins to know. And they, at the same time, they feel bad for the father, but they're also like, what's your deal? Like, you could just end this right now. Put this son in his place. But the father, giving in to the son, then brings the entire society into his shame. The father's very personal and very painful shame becomes very public. The whole town now knows. And it goes on in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, any of us who have ever made a decision that's somewhat bad for us, we know that at least for a while, this was awesome. <laughs> like, like, anybody who wants to act like the sun immediately was filled with regret and remorse? No, no. <laughs> now, if you've ever just eaten a deep dish pizza because you were sad, like, you know, like, in the moment, it feels great. But as it so often goes... This son spends all that he has. The Proverbs say, wealth quickly gained is also quickly lost. This son wastes, he squanders. And then as the cash runs out, as the party is ending, there's also something else going on here. It says in verse 14 that after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, Jesus was a first century Jewish man. 
his primary proclamation of the kingdom of God was to Jewish people. Jewish people, historically, do not uh, find pigs to be something that they draw near to readily. Call them unclean animals. And so what the storyteller, Jesus, in this instance, is trying to bring us in on is the depth of this young man's shame. The depth of how far he's fallen. He was a son on his father's estate, and now he's slopping pigs. Now he longs to fill his stomach with the things that the pigs are eating. There are so many echoes of Genesis 3 here as the, the, even the environment, the actual climate begins to unravel behind him. But that's for next week's teaching. For this week. It says that this son in this state, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And yet here I am starving to death. I know. I will set out and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now in the midst of his despair, he has an epiphany. Ooh, I know. I can go back to my father's house. Now, how many of you have heard this story before? Just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one some way or another. How many of you would say this is the turning point? You don't have to. I got to be honest. When I first, the first several times I read or heard this story, I thought this was the moment where everything changed. But if you pay attention, there's some things going on there. First, in the son's hypothetical speech, in his speech that he's going to bring himself back near to his father, what does he say? He says, Father, make me one of your hired servants. Hmm. He's still kind of ordering his father around, isn't he? Make me. Still kind of in the imperative, like, do this for me. He's canceling out his own identity, too. Who gets to call the son a son? Well, it's the father. The son is saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's kind of self-deprecating. It sounds very humble, but maybe he's saying, I still don't want to be your son. And notice also, he says, make me a hired hand. Now, culturally, a hired hand was not a servant who belonged to the estate. He was not a son who had to live under the father's rule. A hired hand was like a day laborer. He could live off of the estate at some level, but he could still go when there was time to clock out and do as he pleased. And so this son, in his hypothetical speech, as he's in the depths of his shame, is not saying, I know, I'll go back home and maybe my father will accept me. No, he's saying, I know. There's a way for me to still forge my own identity. There is a way for me to still pay off my own debts. I'll even pay back what my father gave to me, however slowly, however long it may take. But I'm still not going to be his son. And so it's with that that he sets off. With this intention to still forge his own way, to still make his own path, but not an intention for restoration of relationship, not an intention for true repentance, which involves justice and restoration, no. But it says, Jesus, Master, that he is. 
says, but while he was long way off, the sun is nearing the town. Now remember, when the sun left the town, the whole town knew. And this is a very public culture. If you liked your privacy, the first century in you know, Palestine and the Middle East was not for you. Everybody knows everybody's business. And just like me at that wedding, as the information begins to slowly diffuse, this is what's happening as this sun is drawing closer to this town. And he's walking closer to his father's house. And what he expects and begins to happen, the whole town begins to show up alongside the road. You see, this guy, when he took all the property that belonged to his father, he didn't just take his family's stuff. It wasn't this kind of privatized, individualized world that we live in. The town, even though the property belonged to the father, kind of felt like it belonged to them. You know, if you've ever talked to a, a fan of a professional sports team, there's an owner, and they write the checks. But ask anybody in the city who the, town, who the team belongs to. Like, no, it's our team. And the city will be here long after the owner. And this is how the townspeople sort of felt about this stuff that this younger son had squandered. And so as the younger son is drawing closer to the father's house, they are lining the streets of the town and they are saying, you are not welcome here anymore. You are cut off from your town, from your family. You're not welcome here. And so shame is being heaped upon him. And the younger son knew that this was going to happen, but he just keeps walking because he has a plan. He is trying to forge his own identity. But it says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. His father sees what is going on. Now, it would have been expected that this father would have stayed in the house. That this young son, having to make supplication, having to repent, that would have to come to him. It would have to be granted permission. But this father, seeing his son down the road, does not go into the house and say, I'll wait for my son to come to me. It says that he was filled with compassion. And he sees him. He sees the scene that's unfolding. He sees the crowd gathering around him, heaping shame upon his son. And you know what he does? He runs. He runs to his son. Now, friends, fathers in this culture, wisdom, people that were drawing towards wisdom did not run. It was shameful for the father to run. He would have to hike up his robes, revealing his legs a man's pace showed his dignity. And yet in this moment, when the father should be waiting, this father, filled with compassion, takes off and he runs. Ecclesia, what does God look like? This is what God looks like. There was a man who had two sons. And he runs to his son. And he embraces him. And he kisses him. And then notice what happens. The son gives his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, I, I used to think that the son was interrupted by the father. And he starts to give his speech and the father says, no, 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 don't worry about it. But I, I don't think that anymore. Again, the son's plan was to be a hired hand. The son's plan was to still forge his own way. But that's not what happens. There's a period at the end of this sentence he simply repents. No more imperatives. No more dictating terms. He just says, I'm sorry. 
what changed? What changed? What fundamentally stopped this son in his tracks? The father ran. What does God look like? This son is seeing the father run to him. He, for the first time, knows the father ran to him. He finally sees the grace of his father. The son knows what God looks like. And as they're wrapped in this embrace, the town itself is brought to a halt. You see, the father has taken all the shame that was being heaped upon the son, these crowds that were assembling, and he has taken it upon himself. And it's the amazing thing about grace. When God's grace breaks through in a moment, it stops. It stops the accusations. It stops the shame. It stops the loss of identity that would tell the son that he's cut off from his house and from his homeland. No, the father says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's Have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found, so they begin to celebrate. The father, to all assembled, to this public gathering, heaping shame, then proclaims to all who are there, This is my son. Let's have a party. Remember what was going on? What brought the son to this world in the first place? Well, back to his father's house? A famine. Ecclesia, when there is grace extended, when we live out of the beauty of who our God is, we are a feast in a world of famine. We are a people who say that there is another way Beyond the lies that say you are a slave, beyond the lies that say you are cut off, there is another way that welcomes the outcast home. And I don't know, for you, if we're talking about somebody else, you're saying, I'm that person. I've run away. I'm far off, and I don't feel like I can go home again. I feel like I've done too much. (laughs) Jesus is saying, what does God look like? He's the one who runs to you while you're still far down the road. This son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. And remember, there are two sons. The older son hears the party, hears the celebration that's taking place, and he asks what's going on. And as he gets news, he is scandalized. It says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. But notice, notice, The older son doesn't want to go into the party. What does the father do? So the father went out to him as well and pleaded with him. But the older son answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice this older son is dealing with very similar questions. He says, Father, all these years I've slaved for you. He doesn't say, Father, I'm your son. He says, Father, I feel like a slave in your house. The younger son forged his own alienation, dislocation from home and identity. But the older son never left the house. But still, he does not identify as a son but as a slave. What we see in the older son is that it's possible to be far from home and never go anywhere. 
but the Father goes out to him too. But you know, Jesus, master storyteller that he is, he doesn't tell us what happens with the older son. He doesn't bring us the resolution and say the older son responded to the father's grace. He leaves it as sort of a cliffhanger. And Ecclesia, today, I want you to see, and I want to say this so clearly, Jesus is the father. Jesus is the father who goes to the far country. We couldn't even get back halfway to our father's house on our own. Jesus goes down into sin and death, being crucified on a cross in order to go and to bring us back home, to call us his daughters and his sons. This is who Jesus is. This is what he accomplished on the cross. And his resurrection life says, Behold, I make all things new. And it is big and it is cosmic, but it is so personal. It invites every one of us to see that we are his daughters and sons, that we have no life apart from our Father's house. And he is welcoming us back home. And I don't know if you identify with the younger son. You know what you've done. You know how badly you've blown it. I don't know if you could run down a list of those things. I want you to see the Father's running to you. This is who God is. I don't know if you identify with the older son. You'd say, listen, I've been living in joyless, dead religion. Notice what the son notices first. The music and the dancing. That's what sets him off. Religion without relationship is joyless. And God, just as the father in this story, is walking out to each one of us and saying, come to the party. Come on. There's more for each one of us. And today, as we come to the table, this feast that Jesus has given each one of us in a world of famine, I want to just simply proclaim your identity to you, that you are daughters and sons, that God has welcomed you home, that he has brought you near. What does God look like? He looks like the Father running to each one of us. He looks like Jesus on the cross. Amen. Let us pray.